I'm Candy McNeil, and this is my show, Open Minds. Today, I have two guests with me. We are going to talk about uh, the issue of addictions. Uh, so I have with me Stephen, who is a student here at the University of Guelph. Thank you so much for being willing to join me and talk about your struggles and your uh, experience of recovery. And Sonia Waters, who is an addictions counselor um, at Homewood. Thank you also for being willing to, to join us. Um, a number of things that I want to ask about, but um, generally speaking, the show is about trying to reduce the stigma and the prejudices that are out there about people who struggle with mental health issues. And so, Stephen, if it's okay, I'll start with you. Maybe you could just tell me whether or not you have found that there are any stigmas or prejudices or assumptions people make about you um, because you struggle with an addiction. There are prejudices. I, at the same time, a lot of people are very supportive when they understand my situation, kind of happy and proud of me, even if they don't know me very well, about what I've done and about being sober. But a lot of people just don't understand that I can never drink, never use again, and basically what that means for me as a person. What does that mean for you? You're still a fairly young person. Well, what I understand it is I have a disease and a disease that I can never be cured from. I can recover from it. I can be free of the obsession to use and, and drink, but I'm never going to be normal in the sense that I can never just have a beer. Because as soon as I have one, my body reacts differently than other people's. Mm -hmm. As soon as it goes in, I can't control how much I take. So I'm never going to be normal in that sense. Right. Sonia, as Stephen's talking, you're nodding your head yes. Is that your understanding of addictions as well? Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. I mean, working at the Homewood Health Center, we, you know, our studies is based on um, addiction being a disease as well as incorporating like the 12-step model as well. So absolutely what Stephen is saying is correct. There are a lot of people who don't buy into that concept of addictions as a disease. Do either of you have any thoughts about that and why people resist thinking of addictions as disease? I think it's the same reason that people don't understand other mental illnesses as, as a disease. It's just really a lack of understanding because it's the same thing as if someone has depression, you know, just get over it, you know. Right. Cheer up. Right. right. It's, it's the exact same thing. It's, you know, why don't you get your stuff together and just, you know, stop drinking and using so much. Just, you know, execute that willpower, which I realized I don't actually have any willpower. I, I may be disciplined in regards to other things, but I cannot execute my so-called willpower when it comes to alcohol and drugs. I have no choice in the matter. I'm going to drink or use. It's something I can't control. I love how you make that distinction between how you could be a disciplined person in other areas of your life, even if you can't be disciplined in this area of your life. And I, I think sometimes as a culture, we fall into that all or nothing, right? Like, well, if you can, if you can be a university student and you can, you know, get your studies done, why can't you just make a choice to have three beers and stop? Have you seen that with other um, patients or clients that you work with? Oh, absolutely. Because that's what we're teaching. We're teaching about behavior changes and that it, this isn't a strength versus weakness and that one does have a disease. And a lot of time, the issues that the patients that I work with or see is that um, family members just don't understand. Like, why don't you just stop? Or as Stephen was saying, strict willpower. If only you would not do this versus that or get your life in order. 
you will stop drinking or using. But unfortunately, it's not as simple as that. Sure. When you tell people what you do for a living, you know, that, that you work with a population who struggles with addictions, are there, you know, positive or negative things you have heard about that? Funny enough, it's a lot of positive. Um, a lot of the reaction that I get from people when they find out what I do as an occupation is the the immediate reaction is, oh, my gosh, like they could never do it. And that it takes a special kind of individual um, to work with this population, to work with someone in addictions. It's just it's something that I just I love to do. Right. <laughs> For me, that's not very different than when I hear about nurses who work like in a pediatric cancer ward, right? I'm like, oh, like that must be such hard mm-hmm. work because you're trying to help somebody who has a very serious illness who may or may not get better, um, right? It's hard to know that. And um, and so I think that's awesome that you've gotten some, some positive feedback about that. Yeah, it's great. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Stephen, you mentioned also that when you've told people about your struggles, that you've gotten um, support around that. Could you talk a little bit about that? Who have you told and, and when did you decide to tell people in your life? If I'm comfortable with a person, if I know, like all my friends know, everyone that I've known from the past, I've been very upfront and open with telling them. I mean, it's it, it's who I am. I can't I can't hide from the world. I can't hide from who I am. You know, I I needed to come to a place where I realized that I'm not normal and I'm and I'm totally fine with that. How long did it take you to come to that realization? Like how long did you struggle with the disease of addiction before you admitted it to yourself? I I think I had it since I was born. Mm-hmm. But it's a progressive illness, right? Like when, you know, in regards to the control over different things in my life, you know, I I as an alcoholic, as an addict, I always wanted to, you know, control things. If things just worked out the way I wanted to, everything would be fine. You know, and that's and that's part of this disease. This, this disease is not just about drinking and using. You know, it's 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 being maladjusted to life. That's my problem. I have a problem with living. Right. I don't have I don't have a problem with drugs and alcohol. Drugs and alcohol are just a symptom of my disease. It's just the only thing I found to deal with this constant feeling of restless irritability and discontentment that I've had for a long time and has just gotten worse and worse as the disease got worse. Wow, what a fabulous way to put that. Like, because I think that says it so succinctly, right? That's what it is. And that is true of um, a number of mental illnesses, right? That they are about a way of trying to cope when you feel like you can't. And you mentioned a couple of things, like if if uh, control was there, or if things went your way, then that might not trigger such a need, but if it didn't go your way, that's when you would try to adapt in this way? It's basically, yeah, like they talk about the alcoholic and addict as a self-will run riot, you know, trying to do everything, get things to work out. You know, I want to be the director. I want everyone to, I want everyone to do what I want them to do. And, you know, if things just went my way, but I had to come to the conclusion that me living off this self-will, trying to do it all my way, it never really worked. I had to be shown this stuff by another person who recovered from this disease. Someone to sit down with me and get me to relate to these symptoms. Not only drink, not only what happens when I drink and use, but how I feel all the time regardless. Be able to identify that I acted, behaved, and felt the exact same way as this other person. Once I realized that I'm, I'm exactly like this other alcoholic, I, I got to a point of surrender 
where I said, I'm done. I can't, I can't run the show anymore because it's not working. Right. I, I can't do it because I've been trying to do it my entire life. I've been trying to feel and be normal my entire life. Right. But I've never been normal. I wasn't born normal. Right. Um, I, again, I find that so well put. And I wonder when you've told friends or family members, have you told them all that piece of it? Yeah, if um, I mean, if it's if it comes to someone that I know well and they're interested, and like, you know, I'm not I'm not gonna sit there and, you know, every single person I meet go, oh, I'm this, I'm this, I'm this, I'm this. Sure. But if they if they are interested and they want to know, you know, then I'll by all means tell them and you know tell them it, it's a living problem, it's not a drinking and using problem. I love that idea, and I I do think that's part of how we break down the stigma is to get people to stop looking at the surface, which is the symptoms, and instead to understand the dynamics that are feeding into that. You were saying earlier, Sonia, that um, sometimes when your you know families don't get it, mm -hmm. is this the kind of thing that you try to help them understand? And if so, what do you find in terms of like what's hard for people to wrap their brain around with that? Yeah, definitely. This is exactly what we try to do. And the difficulty is it, it comes back to a lot of times family members just want the addicted individual or the alcoholic to be fixed. Mm. Um, and so long as they go to treatment and do what's recommended of them, they will be okay. Not realizing, as Stephen was saying, that it's not just about, you know, the drinking and drug use. It's all of the behavior changes that need to come along with uh, changing one's, one's lifestyle. And that's where a lot of family members have great difficulty set, having to set boundaries because sometimes, and I'm not sure how this will go over, but sometimes family members can even be just as ill as the addicted or right, as absolutely. the addicted individual or even more so. Yeah. And putting that statement out can be very frightening and standoffish. So what we try to do is, um, being that I work at the Homewood Health Center, we do offer family information sessions, two evening sessions on a Tuesday night. We also offer a family program as well on a Thursday and Friday for family members to come in and to educate themselves around, you know, this disease of addiction to have a better understanding. You raise such a good point um, in that I've sometimes wondered if stigma persists because people don't want to understand. Because if they say, oh, that's what you struggle with, I can relate to that. Then that would sort of be like admitting, like, maybe I struggle too, right? And it's so much easier to say, you're the addict or you're the one with depression or you're the one with whatever illness, not me. Oh, absolutely. It's easier to, I always say to the patients that I work with is that, um, Denial is a lovely place to live in because so long as I don't, as long as I don't admit to anything, I can kind of continue to stick my head in the sand. But the moment that I actually acknowledge that, oh, maybe there is a problem or maybe I'm, you know, enabling a situation, then something needs to be done. Sure. Mm -hmm. When you finally decided, Stephen, that something needed to be done in your life, was it a hard choice to go into treatment or did that come pretty easily to you? It came to a point where I tried to do everything. You know, I I tried every different method to, you know, I tried every method to get sober myself. Then I tried counselors and psychiatrists, psychologists, anything like that. You know, I even spent a night in the psychosis ward with drug-induced psychosis. I thought fear would keep me sober. Right. Didn't do it. No. You know, rehab's not going to keep me sober either. Mm-hmm. 
what I find sometimes as a therapist is that some people are like, no, 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 I'm not that sick, or I don't want to be labeled as that, or what will people think if I take a semester off, right? I, mean, we, I was asking you before what year you're in, and you said, well, probably around third year, but you've been going to school for five, and actually that's not uncommon, that people can't go all the way through in four years, um, either because they struggle with something or for financial reasons or whatever. But there can be this idea that, I don't know, somehow that says something bad about you. Did you worry about that at all? Or did you experience any of that? I just really didn't have a choice. You know, I, I lost first a semester of drug-induced psychosis. And then the second, when I before I went into treatment, I, like I was at a point where it was so bad that I couldn't barely live the benders just kept getting worse and worse. Right. You know, and it came to the point where I couldn't live anymore. Right. I couldn't do anything. So for you then, you know, shame or embarrassment wasn't a part of the the issue. It was just a, I need to do this. And it was just, I'm done. That's a big thing too, is a lot of people go into treatment or go into whatever, and they're not done. They're there for, you know, they're there for their job. They're there for their wife. They're there for their kids. You have to be really ready to hang up the guns before you can completely admit that you are done. Right. You have to really, really re be ready to be done because, you know, like Sonia was saying, you know, I needed to, you know, once I first understood this disease, then I needed to approach it not to deal with this disease, but figure out how to deal with me. Right. Right. And, you know, that that involved a, a series of almost would seem daunting tasks and some that I continue to do on a daily basis. But, you know, if I had any other option, I wouldn't do it. Right. I had no other option but to take the path I took sure. to recover. Sonia, you're shaking your head to that. Have you seen that with other people? Oh, absolutely. Well? I mean, it's a state of readiness, right? Mm -hmm. Um I've worked with people who've been coerced into treatment, as Stephen was saying, you know, they're there to save their job, save their family, you know, making kind of like a last ditch effort. Um, and there's a real difference. There's nothing wrong with family and job or whatever it may be, even court being a motivating factor. But you but one really needs to be in a state of readiness to be ready to be open to the treatment that they deserve, um, be willing to hear the recommendations or to follow through treatment recommendations and to live life differently. There's there's such a difference between those that do come into treatment that are just simply there um, to get everyone off their back versus those that are, as Stephen was saying, that they're they're done and they're very ready. You speak really well about this, Stephen. Like you, you really seem like sure of what you're saying. You've you've made some peace about this clearly. I'm properly armed with the facts about myself about this disease by being shown by someone else, someone else who thought, felt, drank, and used how I did, and now doesn't feel that way anymore. You know, was able to sit down with me and guide me through, so I could understand what was wrong with me, and then how. From there, after understanding, you know, understanding is only the first step. After that, I needed to really, the only way that I've seen anyone recover is by having a vital spiritual experience. This is not something that, you know, all the good action, all the good thinking, all the good whatever, I cannot think my way out of this. I needed God's help. You know, being an atheist coming in, and it was something that I needed, you know, to believe first in someone else, that it worked for someone else who was just like me. And then to seek this spiritual solution. Right. You know, I recover, 
I, I've realized that I have a spiritual disease as well as a mental and physical disease. Right. And you know, and you you recover spiritually, then physically, then mentally, not in the other way around. You can't, you know, get sober, go to the gym all the time, start reading books, do whatever, and then expect to recover. You need to recover spiritually first. Right. And then physically and mentally follows. I think one of the reasons that it feels important to me to do what I can to reduce shame and stigma is exactly that, that sometimes it's so helpful to talk to somebody else who has been in that position. And that's true um, for listeners, whatever mental illness you might struggle with, you know, talking to somebody who has bipolar um, and what their experience is like, talking to somebody who has had an eating disorder and is further along the path in recovery. In your case, talking to somebody else who had an addiction. Um, at Homewood, um, is that approach embraced to, you know, almost like a mentorship? Oh, absolutely. Um, so not only do we talk about behavioral changes, I mean, we really encourage people to attend 12-step meetings, whether it's narcotic, Narcotics Anonymous, it's Alcoholics Anonymous, it's Cocaine Anonymous, whatever it may be for that individual. We definitely, we encourage that. We encourage one to obtain a sponsor, someone who has, you know, a minimum of, of two years of recovery, who's worked through the 12 steps. Because um, that's what I hear Stephen speaking to is, and is healthy and who can identify and relate and then guide the addicted individual to work a program. For a long time, I think in our field, Sonia, uh, there was kind of a, a separation between issues of spirituality or religion um, and mental health, right? But what I hear you talking about is the full um, mind, body, spirit kind of recovery. And 12-step programs very much embrace that. Absolutely. You can really see a difference in those that come through treatment who are who are. Very there and who sober up versus someone who's actually working a program of recovery. And the vital difference is the spiritual connection that Stephen has been speaking to. It's just, it's incredibly, it, it's a real honor and a privilege to watch from my end, mm -hmm. the growth that one does spiritually when they're working their steps and doing the dues of like of recovery in order to stay well um, versus someone who's just completely just sobered up and going through the motions. For as challenging as it is, um, we have a pretty amazing job, don't we? We do. We really do. And I, I think about that as you were saying that, you know, there are times where I have been moved beyond words at, you know, what I get to witness and participate in. And I I like getting that message out, too, because I'm so afraid that people will think that if they go to see a therapist, they're going to be judged or criticized or, you know, looked down on. And, um, yeah, I just I think with many of my clients, it has been such a privilege. And as I listen to you speak today, I just think, like, wow, I really admire you. And um, quite the opposite of some of these negative stereotypes that persist. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I cannot tell you just how how privileged I feel and honored I feel, you know, being able to watch someone, you know, come into treatment, right, like from day one, and then, you know, watch them grow throughout the course of the five weeks inpatient. And when they should they choose to participate in our aftercare program, I have the opportunity of, of another 36 weeks right. um, to really watch growth happen. And it's just it's a real honor and a privilege to witness all of that. Sure. Stephen, there was something you wanted to say, maybe on a diff different topic or on this? Um, yeah, it was just on the uh, the difference between being sober and recovered. There's a big difference, I find. You know, um, and, you know, Sonia stresses two years, which I understand. You know, that's 
that's the that's the clinical aspect of it. But you know, I would give. There's people I know who have you know six months a year sobriety, who I would give. You know, I I want what they have, not someone who has 20 years and is still miserable. Right. You know, like and that's the thing. Like I, I I don't think time means anything when it comes to that. It it's it's more so. You know, do I want what they have? Because you know never never doing an actual program never actually working it what are they going to show me right because what it takes to recover from this disease is you know you need a vast change in feeling and outlook right. you know like it it's a severe emotional displacement like because of working this program because of conscious contact with god i don't feel or think at all in the way i used to you know it can still creep back in, but I have a program to, to keep, to keep on point. But, you know, like I lose interest in myself. I gain interest in my fellows. You know, I, I see where I can be of maximum service to other people today. And this is something that I could have never done by myself. You know, years of self-discipline, years of doing the right thing by myself could not have produced this change in me that happens, you know, in a short period of time by having a vital spiritual experience. Sure. One thing I, I do want to ask before we run out of time as we're talking about that is, you know, what it's like to come back to a university campus with that and really actually to live in a bigger culture where our holidays are very much about um, drinking or um, partying in some way, but, but especially when you're on a campus where that is pretty normal. Any special difficulties you have um, found trying to come back to this environment? Having working a program and doing what I have to do, having recovered, the problem of drinking and using has been removed from me because I feel good enough about myself on a daily basis that I don't need to change the way I feel. You know, as long as I'm, as long as I'm working my program, I have the freedom to go anywhere and do anything. So I think that that maybe busts another myth, which is that if you have a disease or a mental illness, um, you are significantly impaired and you are not going to be as successful as you could have been. You know that your life is going to be really limited. Do either of you believe that, that if, if somebody has struggled with a mental illness, that it means, you know, they should give up their hopes and dreams of a family, of a career, of, you know, whatever they wanted for themselves? Or do you think people can be pretty happy and successful even when they've struggled with mental illness? I think 100%. How about for the long term, Sonia? Do you think that there are limitations because somebody has struggled with an addiction? No. You know what? I, I, I really don't. Um, many, many great things can can continue to occur. And one can definitely, with, with their aspirations, their dreams, whatever it may be for them, can definitely achieve that. I think in the midst of active addiction, one cannot. But working a program of recovery and, you know, and being healthy, I mean, just as you heard, I mean, S Stephen is a testament to that. He's able to come back to university complete, you know, a semester and get through exams. Uh, yeah, I think that's a complete myth. I'm not that. Yeah, yeah, definitely one. There can definitely be happiness and like, you know, that happy, joyous and free for sure. In fact, sometimes I have found that I think because some clients are forced to look at deeper issues that they might not have, they may be happier than they would have been just kind of going through the motions. Mm -hmm. uh, I like I that that's definitely the fact. I think, you know, I thank God I'm I'm an alcoholic. I'm an addict. I, I, 
pain's a beautiful thing because you know i would you know i was an like i said an atheist coming in given this disease i had two options either die an alcoholic drug addicted death or grow spiritually right and you know growing spiritually has been one of the most beautiful it it allows me to see beauty in life that i've never been able to experience before right like life is i'm able to witness and enjoy and just experience things that i never would have been able to before like if i didn't have this problem i would have had no reason to seek and really get deep down and and face all these things in myself and then you know i i would never have i've never i would never get to the point i'm at today if it wasn't for all the pain I think that's so interesting because, again, there's there's just this thinking that mental illness brings negativity to you, to your family, to your friends, to all of your experiences. And it certainly can. And I heard what you were saying about an active addiction, Sonia, and how that um, certainly can wreak havoc in your life. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for you, Stephen, there was that, like, I'm done. Like, I'm just done. And there's a lot of pain. There was a lot of pain. For sure. <laughs> but but from that, it just sounds like also growth and healing. And sometimes things that we wouldn't look at. People talk about this when they have like a near-death experience, right? And they'll say like afterwards, they're like, wow, I really feel like that woke me up or made me stop taking for granted. And I mean, that good things can come from it. And when you were talking earlier, Sonia, about how, you know, it might mean when a family comes in that you are bringing to their attention, like maybe you have a struggle too. You know, I, I think even that can sometimes be good. There there will be some family members for sure who will be like, yeah, we're not here to talk about me. He's the problem. But there will be others who like, you know what? You're right. Maybe I should look at my stuff too. So it can it can start to have a ripple effect. And I wonder that when you've talked to friends, um, Stephen, if sometimes people have been like, you know, let me look at my own behaviors, right? And um, that, that sometimes it can facilitate change that otherwise wouldn't happen. I love how you both have um, a, an attitude about this around um, good can come from it and that this is not permanently damaging or limiting, although it sounds like you're very clear, Stephen, this will be with you for life um, and you'll have to be mindful and, and aware of that. Um, but you were talking about, um, you know, things that you can still go on to do and even enjoy your life more in some ways um, than you were before. And I wish you more of that. I would love to be able to keep talking, actually, because I have more questions that I didn't get through. And so um, maybe at some point we'll do that. But uh, for today, I think we have to leave it there. Is there anything that either of you would like to say to somebody who might be struggling or who is thinking about treatment that, that you would want them to know? If there's anything that I could just a message just to get out to your listeners is it's easy to not let anybody know what's going on and mm -hmm. to sit in silence and suffer. I'd really encourage them, whoever it may be, let people know what's going on. Right. Reach out, ask for help, um, whether it's a, a peer, um, you know, a, a trusted I don't know, professor or coming here at the university center. And I'm sure there's there are avenues here where They're one sure can are. definitely ask for help with and to not be afraid because if anything when dealing with an addiction you know it wants you to stay silent and it would and it wants you to isolate yourself from from others so definitely to reach out and do the opposite 
I want to thank you both for being so generous with your time and your experiences, being willing to share that. Um, Again, this is Candy McNeil, and you're listening to Open Minds. Uh, If you have questions or comments about the show, I would love to hear them. Please send them to my email. That's openminds at cfru.ca. There's a link to that on my website, which is whatseatingyou.com. You've been listening to Stephen, who is a student here at the University of Guelph, and Sonia Waters, who is an addictions counselor at home. Homewood here in Guelph. Um, and uh, really, just again, my thanks to both of you. You're welcome. Thanks a lot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.